think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 85 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 86th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Hanson Rainbow. And uh, today we, uh, we are here to follow up on... So, it's interesting because it's been at once a quite hectic news month. Uh, what with uh, the the old uh, coronavirus and the, the the impeachment in the U.S. and uh, international events broadly. Yeah, but yes. like in terms of Canadian parliamentary proceedings and then federal <laughs> politics writ large, it's like kind of not really been a lot. Uh, Trudeau has a beard now, but it also hasn't been a lot for like six months, right? Like, well, except for the election. Yes, but <laughs> as, as you said, in terms of like sort of federal non-electoral politics, um, we we didn't really. Uh, covered the election to any great extent. Um, yeah, we were some, a little busy. <laughs> somewhat deliberately. Yes. Um, like, we haven't had a government since June, um, and only maybe this week, what I'd say, is have we... Do we have a properly recomposed government? So would you say, in fact, that Canada is back? <laughs> yes. Would you go that far? I, I would go so far as to say the uh, the Canadian government is back. Oh, there you go. After a quite a protracted absence. Yes. Um, so, in terms of the House of Commons, we are still early days. Um, the House reconvened briefly in December, then uh, rose for its recess for of, of the winter holidays, holiday which happens break. every year. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, like a week ago, week the twenty eighth. Yeah. No, it was twenty seventh. It was earlier than that. What was the House coming back? No. Oh no, you're right. Oh yeah. It was no, whatever no, no, the Monday yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was twenty seventh. Um, then the House came back, and then we had a little bit of stuff happening. There was the Canada-China committee that met. Uh, well, actually, they met even before the House was back. Uh, yes, they were yeah. called back as a special... Uh... by Because of the motion that was passed to establish it, they had to have a meeting uh, on or before a certain date. Correct. So We're, Worth noting that that was the earliest opposition win of the parliament. Yes. Um, um, and we're starting to see a few more of those. Yeah, I mean, opposition day motions now. It's interesting because, as always with opposition day motions, you have the choice of whether you want it to pass or whether you don't want it to pass uh, <laughs> and make people vote against something or actually constructively try to get something done. Sure. Um, so that that's always the choice, and the conservatives seem to have taken the opportunity to... Uh, well, now actually, now that you're in a minority government, uh, you have the opportunity to kind of have your cake and eat it on uh, yes, Day motions. Yes, you, which is, you uh, work with your fellow opposition in order yeah. to come up with a motion that everyone can agree with. Except for the government. Yes, uh, that's what I mean. Every, everyone <laughs> within the opposition fold. Yes. Um, and you're able to get things are going yes um in fact if you're not passing opposition day motions you gotta you gotta ask yourself why because there is definitely substantial well, sometimes room sometimes you don't want to i imagine it's Un- going to be understood yeah i imagine it's going to be block motions for instance that are going to be like that the house agree that the province of quebec is the best of all canadian provinces sure that's going to be tough for other parties to vote for the, um, the block is somewhat of a unique but even liberal or conservatives in the NDP are going to have motions where they're going to want the other one to vote against it there, right? like, there will doubtlessly be some yeah. that are wedges just for the yeah. sake of being wedges sure sure the conservatives will pass one or like put one forward that's saying that like we oppose all hug a thug policies and uh, the NDP being notorious thug huggers will, <laughs> uh, will of course vote for it but early days what we're seeing is that the opposition are cooperating you, yes. you raised uh, the initial one which was the China committee um, and the next one, which was just the other day, was uh, 
the audit of the infrastructure fund. The uh, investing in Canada. Program, yes. A request to the auditor general. Who does not have to do it, mind you. He is, yeah. He's actually in an interesting position in that he is an officer of parliament. I, uh, but I'm not sure we have a formal auditor general. Mere, merely an acting auditor general. That is cor- Actually, that's true because uh, Ferguson unfortunately passed away uh, quite suddenly not that long ago. Which, uh, obviously, uh, tragic sudden passing, but uh, the auditor, just generally speaking, his office is an officer of parliament, uh, does not have to follow the explicit direction of parliament, which actually makes a great deal of sense because the point of his office is to audit the government, and usually the government has control of parliament, uh, and that's to avoid the auditor general being able, or the rather the, the government being able to say, auditor general, do not look at any of these programs, please. Um, but he can take uh, parliamentary advice into consideration. And to be clear, um, the government is allowed to direct the Auditor General to audit something, but not to not audit something. Yeah, it's sort of weird that the executive um, has the capacity to direct the Auditor General, um, but Parliament or the House of Commons formally doesn't, um, especially because the Auditor General is an officer of Parliament. Yes. Um, So that's a little weird, a little quirk of the Auditor General Act. It is a bit odd. I can sort of see the logic for it because auditor general reports, I think you don't want them becoming a total political football. Yeah, but I mean... Like, I think a part of that is to basically, like, ensure that there has to be some independence to the office in terms of what it pursues because otherwise it would quickly become something that whichever party is in opposition uses opportunistically and whichever party in government feels free to disregard. I think there's an intention with the auditor general... To have it be something that everyone has to take seriously, but I, I am I'm frankly speculating as to why that was designed the way it was. I'm sure we could go back just, to the debates around the, the drafting of the Auditor General Act and look into that. But sure, but just thinking of other officers of Parliament, the Language Commissioner, the Lobbying Commissioner, yes. the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner. Sure, it, in each of those cases, there's the capacity to lodge a complaint and have them sort of institute. An investigation into, but you know, usually at discretion, your, which your is billionaire this, island. Yeah, but usually at discretion, which is sure. But the, the, there doesn't seem to be that mechanism here, except for what they're doing, which is as noted at the yeah. discretion of. But the, that's that seems to be like I'm saying on par with what other officers of parliament actually do. But there's no actual formal in all of those other cases. Yes, no, but you there are rules and guidelines that govern the process uh, for making a request govern the discretion. To the okay, I see what you mean, yes. Yeah, and in this case it's sort of you know, should the auditor general take it upon themselves to to yeah, push it ahead, there's not a rigid process defined in the Auditor General Act for whether or not, you know, it hits a certain threshold to sure. meet the yeah, and I, I still think that what I said about like not letting the Auditor General's office become a sort of political tool is like that would track with that fact, I think. But yeah, we, we are speculating, which is fine. You know, that's that's part of what we do here. But uh, yeah, we don't really know. Um, so to circle back, so we had, yes, as we say, two opposition motions passed, one to establish a committee, one to... Um, ask the Auditor General, I suppose, to look into the Investing in Canada plan and to its effectiveness, etc. In terms of government legislation, we've had the government reintroduce a bill about CBSA oversight. Um, Yes. Yes. And also introduce the legislation for the new COSMA, USMCA, new NAFTA, whatever we're calling it. C4. Um, They're calling it C4 because it's going to be so explosive. (laughs) 
So C one is the You only get to do it once a parliament, Jen, all right? Just let me have it. C one is the the usual not the real. I always forget exactly what it is. It, it's just a pro forma bill. It is, but I don't remember ever what it actually is. The Senate one is something about railways. The House of Commons one, I have no idea what it is. Yeah, there, there's. It might be like basically titles are on I have, Who cares? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, the next one was basic financial stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then C3 uh, thus far was, as you alluded to, the CBSA oversight. Um, I've been actually, Riveting. I haven't looked into the CBSA oversight one, but as is commonly mentioned, and I have some familiarity with this from my time at Public Safety, um, the CBSA does need oversight. I, I haven't looked at how it's structured, but CBSA oversight is good. More hmm. oversight for CBSA. Hmm. I think uh, I'm not sure you... I think the message you're sending there to people who put their lives on the line every day is very dangerous there, Etienne. You don't want them second-guessing themselves when they're in harm's way. I've read a lot of letters back and forth between the CBSA and citizens getting stopped and detained at the border for various reasons. Well, and, you know, uh, sometimes you got to keep Canada safe. A, a little more oversight could not hurt in this case. <laughs> <laughs> to make mm. it abundantly clear to listeners who may not have heard this podcast before, I'm being somewhat facetious. Uh, and then NAFTA, which is was preceded by a Ways and Means motion, and yes. now the enabling legislation is did, quickly making it through. Did they we come to a conclusion about why there needed to be a Ways and Means motion for this trade agreement? Tariffs seems to be the... Yeah, but that would imply that tariffs were rising. No, no, it would imply that there are mechanisms that have the capacity to raise tariffs, which makes sense. I see, okay. If but you... would that not be the case for other trade agreements? I don't know. Because for, I, I actually looked, and Canada, or uh, CETA... Canada, South Korea, uh, those were the two I compared. Oh, and CPTPP didn't have Ways and Means motions. It strikes me that... Oh, should we be super clear to people? Also, Ways and Means motions basically are motions that have to be passed by the House of Commons basically before approving any raise, any like raising of taxes um, and usually spending of money when it comes to the budget bill. Yes. Yes. Um, they also have some reasonably unique powers to put things into effect immediately yes they do um, yes prior to with the, taxation as we've talked about before prior. usually tax changes are basically come into effect when the ways and means motion is passed yes. which okay well actually we'll come back to the other point about ways and means motions but carry on um yeah i i don't know why it's unique with nafta um, yeah i was it, really racking my brain it about that one strikes me that it seems like nafta may have more of an element of uh, defensiveness than other ones sure. do in relation to, for instance, steel or yeah. that you slapped tariffs on us and we're allowed to counter provisions like that. That yeah, and my my guess weren't the case with Israel or any of the other sure. trade agreements. My my guess on this one was that it cut tariffs relative to W or WTO, but not relative to the agreement it's replacing. Was my possible interpretation of why it needed a ways and means motion but i've not come to a definitive conclusion on that so if anyone knows don't hesitate to let us know uh the other ways and means motion actually was one of the first it came out with the fiscal update i believe yes yes which was about actually the middle class tax cut that the government uh has been talking about uh they actually did not pass it before uh the house rose uh in december uh it was postponed for reasons that are unclear to me Okay. Uh, and has since come for a vote and been passed, but sure. it was not in effect until like yeah a week ago. Though everyone was reporting like it was, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, sometimes these things get lost in nuance. And it does happen. Um, but that being said, um, 
I mean, it's it scales in over quite a long period of time. Yeah. It's not the type of thing that's intended to make a dramatic impact. Sure, yeah. It's on, not like you're going to be changing your tax planning around it. For on, the, yeah, yeah, on exactly. this tax cycle. So. Yeah, no. Um, I guess the PBO report about that tax change came in as well. Yeah, it's yeah. going to cost one point some billion dollars more than anticipated yeah, due to changes in projections and a change in the way that they implemented it relative to the platform promise. Interesting. Um, yes, I don't remember the specific carve-out that was in the platform that made it appear cheaper. That carve-out has been removed. Ah, <laughs> uh, you gotta love it. Is, it is now more expensive. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's good stuff. Um, so I guess the other, so that, that's to cover sort of the parliamentary ground since, uh, since we last spoke. To sum it up, you haven't missed much. You have not missed much. Uh, however, there have been some developments in the conservative leadership race, certainly. There have been. So, um, last time we spoke, uh, I put forward the very strong proposition that Pierre Polyev would win. It he, was it was seeming at that time a Polyev versus Charette matchup. Yes, and now both of them are out of the picture. Yes. Yes. Which, uh, I mean, I'm glad I didn't put any money on them. <laughs> <laughs> you never put money on until the they're, they're in, the yeah. signatures are in and the, the yeah. twenty five grand is paid. Yes, um, has really been the moral of this leadership race. Indeed, yes. Um, Ambrose has now officially confirmed she's out along with a few others. Yeah, Shara and um, among them, which leaves the dynamic at this moment as Polyev. Uh, sorry, as uh, Aaron O'Toole, um, friend of the show, versus Peter McKay. Not friend of the show. <laughs> we have yet to go to Pictou County to record. Pictou. Pictou, that's what I said. You did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think this is a... It's an interesting dynamic so far. Um, I would say McKay is running possibly the blandest campaign I have ever seen that seems to basically be... Actually, it's very interesting because in a sense, it's almost like a... Uh, you're seeing Ontario Proud in its first couple of months of existence versus Ontario Proud <laughs> later in its existence, where one is basically messages about how cool hockey is and Canadians are, are good and we like them. And then the other one is like, we're going to defeat the radical left. Um, so th- th- I think that's an interesting way to look at it, I suppose. Um that's one way you could frame <laughs> it. Um, that wouldn't be how I frame it. I don't doubt it. Um, what strikes me is you have to look at the camp the, the campaign teams behind. Well, I was the, I was the two individuals because largely what we're basing. Um, I mean, no policy broadly. Um, like there aren't policy packages that have been released. Not There's yet. Some policy alluded to via social media, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, there have been, you know, the in-person campaign events, barely. Yeah. Um, but basically what everyone is ranking the candidates on right now is their Twitter feeds and the social yes. media. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, and also their teams, uh, as you said. And, well, that's yeah. where I'm getting yeah. to, um, which is produced by their teams and not their entire teams, but, you know. Elements of their team. The comms team and yeah. the, the digital team. Um, which is worth saying in O'Toole's case, draws so, on the expertise of... Ballingall, which is the Canadian Proud guy that you were talking about. Canada Proud. Uh, Slash Ontario Proud. Canadian Proud. Yes. Um, Not a real conservative. I am proud because Canada makes me proud. Yes. Um, But in the case of Peter McKay, it's the Bernier team. Have they been sanded down to, like, just remove all edge? I don't know. Um, 
But what's notable about McKay's positioning, as mocked as it has been so far, yeah, it has broadly been positive positioning. No, I mean, look, it like, is not it, the populist make Canada yeah. great again. It is the I am it's proud hockey to dad. be a Canadian. Yeah, it's, it's because Canadians make me proud. Yeah, right? and that's like it's like basically Stephen Harper without any of the sharp edges. Uh, which I suppose Stephen Harper with a smile was also the Andrew Shear pitch, but it is very normie hockey dad, right? But it, like is it's what a it's pitched at. Pretty significant break thus far in yeah. terms of party messaging, mm-hmm. um, which is Aaron O'Toole is very much still going down that line. Well, much um, more conservative. Trudeau is yeah. ruining the economy as yeah. opposed to McKay's vision thus far has been more. I'm, I like hockey. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. Thank You're you. You're all pretty cool. Try the veal. <laughs> Um, so I guess we'll see what to make of that. Uh, there are other, so the other thing is kind of the, the conservative party sideshow of various like social conservatives and Marilyn Gladue. All of the 15 other candidates. So so to be fair to Marilyn Gladue, um, the Reaper, Marilyn, the Reaper, (laughs) Gladue. She is at least one tier above. Oh, because she's a sitting MP. All yeah. of, oh, actually, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> sitting non-first-term MP. Yes. Yeah. No, fair enough. Um, she is an established MP who has a track record and a strong resume. Um, I don't know that I've seen anyone endorse her um, to date. Well, she has said she has plus qu'un caucus endorsement. Well, to, to, that is what she says. to be released at some point. Indeed. Um, but... Gladju is someone who I was actually sort of astonished by some of the polling I've seen on this. I don't remember the exact percentages, but there was a non-zero percentage of Canadians who said they were very they were familiar with Gladju, um, and it was only marginally less than O'Toole, which struck me as basically impossible. Yeah, I mean, she was a conservative science critic for at some point he- in the last health, parliament. Health critic. Health critic. No, she was science as well. Ah, okay. Yeah, science it was relevant perhaps. to my work at the time. Uh, and uh, health, health for mine. Yes. Um. So, yes, but generally the health critic is not a well-known household name um, versus Aaron O'Toole, who was a minister um, and also time. in the leadership race last yeah. time. Both both of those things give you substantially more national profile yeah. um, than being an assorted critic. Oh, and it's been foreign affairs critic, too. And uh, foreign yeah, affairs critic. Which also, and was she also justice? At one point? I don't know the whole rest. I don't have the CV in front of me. Aaron, send us your CV. (laughs) Um, High-profile critic roles, at any rate. Yes. So I'd say there's sort of like the the tier one, uh, which is Aaron and uh, Peter, and that's reflective both in their their history, their national profile, and their teams. Uh, And then there's the B tier, or did I use lettering or numbering? Tier two? Doesn't matter. uh, Marilyn Gladue, and then tier... Three through six. Yes. Um, of various degrees of wonkiness. Um, with perhaps the higher level in those tiers being uh, sort of the established business types. Um, PetersonLeader.ca. The, <laughs> yes. Rick Peterson. Um, and also the movie theater Dragon's Den guy. I'm going to suspend comment on this. <laughs> um, and then like at the bottom of it is the MP who... Hasn't yet spoken. Derek Sloan, the uh, the staffer from Quebec. I, well, Desquadres. M- maybe I'll put him up a little higher, um, merely because he has more campaign campaign infrastructure behind him. In that he is he's sort a SoCon of, guy. He has grafted on yeah. some of the sort of established SoCon campaign infrastructure. Um, SoCon Navy Seals. Sorry. And then there's like 
random Stafford dude, Aaron Seal, who seems to be hawking cannabis products as much as anything. Well, fair play. Like, <laughs> 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 uh, so yeah, a uh, uh, one, of, one of those green, diverse... one of those green Tories I hear so much about. <laughs> yes, that's that's what that word. Means. Hey. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to mention Peterson a little bit because PetersonLeader.ca. <laughs> yes, thank thank you for that. I don't even know if that's still his website. I'm, I'm, I'm be totally yeah. honest. It was his website last time, and it just tickled me to see him I'm mention sure it. I'm sure he's kept debate. the domain alive. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what's interesting about him is he he built himself a little bit of a profile. Admittedly, I had no idea who he was before the leadership. Um. And then in the interim, he's been doing this suits and boots thing, um, which is sort of building consensus support for the oil and gas or I was, was going to say with the, name, with the name this could only be a pro oil sands uh, um, labor management alliance but from what I've seen it's actually some of the, like, the conferences they've held are not uh, shy about getting voices from d- different voices mm-hmm. um, in the room uh, opposing voices and oppositional voices so that's always not bad um, so wh- whatever it seems like a, you know, a fine organization I like to imagine it's like a wrestling heel kind of thing. Just being like, I'm the green hippie, and I'm here to tell you that you suck. <laughs> but this is where I'm taking it to. The most recent article, that, or one of the recent articles about Rick Peterson's uh, leadership campaign was about, you know, his innovative new ideas and how oh, he yeah, was going yeah, to... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a bit of that, hasn't there? And sort how of he what was tried to do last time. Revolutionize yeah. government and be innovative and... Run it like a business? What? So, so that's that's a point I wanted to bring up. I, there was a recent Weeds episode where Matt and Ezra or whoever. I don't um, listen to the Ezra ones anymore. I can't stand them. Fair. I do like Matt, though. We're talking about business types in politics. So mm-hmm. the obvious compare or the obvious, their discussion was obviously centered around Steyer and Bloomberg and, the, and that type. Yeah. And about. Uh, Not the, the incumbent. Businessmen who, polit, uh, who position themselves to be politicians. And what type of business man? Oh yeah, do you no, want I did listen to this. A politician, as in like the the Trump sort of like brandy person versus the person, the executive of, of Pepsi who has like run a yes. large organization. That, that's for, yeah, that's exactly the point I wanted yes. to raise. Yeah. So Peterson's bringing his business credentials in and saying, you know, I'm gonna make Ottawa run like Silicon Valley. That seems like a terrible idea. I, Silicon Valley's <laughs> run very badly. Um, Once again, if you want to run it like the pharmaceutical industry, which is an evil fucking industry, but at least like seems to have its trains run relatively on time, like there you go. But the point they were making was that government—it's frankly a very naive view of government that you're going to come in and you're going to innovate the hell out of it and you're going to change. Government exists as government. Well, I mean, um, if you have deliverology, though, everything will be solved <laughs> within a couple of years, and you won't have any problems anymore. Government is the way it is all over the world, um, not because everyone is talking to each other and communicating in such a such an effective way, mm-hmm. but because generally this model of being hierarchical, yeah, and they're um, and to be super slow, clear, deliberative, yeah, all works well when you're trying to provide services to between thirty and a. 30 million and a billion and people. And also in our system, like, we prioritize having clear lines of accountability. Yes. Whereas if you have, like, agile teams that are, like, blah, blah, right? Like, okay, well, who do you call when someone's heat doesn't turn on, right? Like, well, we have an agile team, so it could have been anyone in our open GitHub repository. That, like, <laughs> well, okay, but, like, I need my fucking heat turned back on. So, yeah, that's, it's diff- it's different. And especially because for us, where the clear lines of accountability flow up to the political level, like, 
you can't have a situation where someone gets up in the house and says, why isn't my constituents heat on? And eight ministers are like, oh, it's them, and point in every direction. <laughs> it's like, because of our agile team structure. It's it just that doesn't work, and people wouldn't stand for it, for good reason. So, as, as you alluded to, the, the Coke or the Pepsi CEO was what they raised, and I, I think it is a, a very fine and true point. That people who are good at running large organizations tend to be good at running large organizations. I yes. think there's something to that, sure. <laughs> and, and, and the running of an organization yeah. where it's like we're talking about making – you know, marginal change, cultural shifts, yeah. things along those lines for an organization, a multinational organization, yeah. as opposed to Shopify or a startup where yeah. it's like, I'm going to come to work at 11 and work until two in the morning. And this is how government should work too. Yeah, no, that's not, yeah. Also, um, we're saying that I think the labor world has a lot of these similar types of people, like people who run large organizations that are labor unions. Um, is, is like also a perfectly reasonable place to look for this kind of expertise. But there you go. I know our f- first place is typically business. Are you saying more labor leaders in any yeah, politics? I think that would be, I think, well, it's just um, saying I'm that not... like there is similar experience that exists at the labor level, like of like large scale managerial executive experience. Sure, as uh, I, I would it not... Is not the ex- I'm just making the point that it is not the exclusive purview of, of people in suits. And I would sur- submit that to a certain extent, you know, large NGOs and yes. things along those lines are, you yes. know, equally... Though NGOs, re- it, we're saying, are non-governmental, in very, <laughs> but in very key ways, right? In the sense that they're much more... Uh, they are not about making lights turn on and things run on time. They're about missions, which in some sense works with the role of government, but in other ways really doesn't. Yes. Uh, in the sense that NGOs tend to be much more like Silicon Valley firms than they are like Pepsi. I think it depends on the NGO. It does depend on the NGO. But yes. I, I do take your point. Yeah. I mean, as it depends on the business as to yeah. whether or not you're talking about your Shopify or your Pepsi. Sure. Um, although Coke is a much better example. Um, much more successful than Pepsi. Yeah. Pe- boo Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> this, po- this podcast, officially. <laughs> Um, was there any anything else you wanted to address in the uh, the leadership race? Dynamics? I mean, I don't know that there's a whole lot to say other than that. Like the, t- it's interesting that Peter McKay has attracted a lot of Bernie people. It's interesting to me that Peter O'Toole has attracted a lot of the so, kind of. I'm not clear uh, as to whether or not he's hired the Bernie team. Okay. Or whether they've self-selected. Sure. No, um, but that's my point, though. Is that like it's interesting that there's common. No, but there's, there's there? a distinction there. There's a yeah. distinction between hiring a team yes. that, you know, nearly brought it across the end zone last time versus having well those people in your camp. The McKay team... Voluntarily. Yeah, but the, uh, one point to make about the, the former Barrier team is that I think they're all largely at one place now. Yes. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. That is correct. Okay, so in that sense, that makes a bit more sense. I had forgotten about that element of it. Yes. Yes. They, they are a cohesive unit that has... Been cohesive for quite some time Very and, good. and remains cohesive. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so they come somewhat as a package. And it's not so ideological as it is a business relationship. Well, that's what I don't understand okay. yet about the Peter McKay. Uh, with Bernier, I 100% think it was ideological. Yeah. Um, the same team worked for Ford. Yeah. I think it was ideological there as well. Where's Nick Kufalis right now? Um on a yacht somewhere? Oh, he is, isn't he? Yeah. Know, I, <laughs> that's true, actually. I don't know if that's yet. I don't think he's anywhere after earlier being floated as the Shogun. campaign manager for Charette. Yeah. He's, who knows where. Well, we'll see what happens with that, I guess. Um, but yeah, I was a little surprised about O'Toole, who last time I think ran as like the sensible 
not centrist, right? Because I don't think he ran as a centrist, but he ran as like a sort of sensible conservative. Sure. So I, yeah. I think that's the piece that we're missing is O'Toole and He's running O'Toole's a much team. harder edged campaign this time, I think it's fair to say. Yes. And Which, fair with, enough, he has to draw more of a contrast with McKay. So I understand politically the angle there. That's it's just, exactly it. It's a little jarring uh, for people who may have come away from the last leadership race thinking he is this kind of politician. It, it raises the authenticity question as to whether or not he is putting on his Pierre Polyev suit. Yes. Um, in order to get everyone right of yeah. Peter McKay, which frankly I mean, it, is, it's is a, a it's lot a of people. It's a very reasonable strategic play too. Um, like I get it, but yeah. Yeah, but there is, there is a very obvious clash with O'Toole's positioning the last leadership and generally who people understand him to be to yeah. date. So, yeah, no... I think it's going to be an interesting leadership race. Uh, certainly Peter McKay coming out and saying no carbon tax, but yes, pride marches is like one, one step at a time, I guess, for, uh, for the Conservative Party. But uh, let no one accuse them of moving too quickly. As, as people have stated, I mean, uh, Peter McKay, not someone known to uh, be immovable in his declarations. A very flexible person. Yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think that... That's that for that. Oh, one, one sure. last quick point of conversation on the leadership race. Um, we'd be remiss if we didn't note the ongoing and protracted conversation about bilingualism in leadership well, candidates. Well, yeah, that was, that okay. was part two. Yeah, okay. no, I wasn't going to. All right. Yeah, I was going to say, and this now. Yes. So bilingualism. Uh, so Etienne and I are both people who are from bilingual families or francophone families, more so in my case. Uh, but grew up in a very pretty well exclusively anglophone sort of milieu, if you will. So it's fair to say. Uh, so we both. Speak... I, I am slightly more shades of gray because I went to a French school until right. grade six. Right, I forget or that. Grade five, yeah. grade six, I transferred to an English school, um, and but I had the option to continue going to Fran- francophone, not um, immersion French education, yeah. until all the way through high school, basically. Um, where you did not. I did not. So your French is entirely homegrown. Yeah. Where mine is a combination of homegrown and elementary education. Yes. Um, but that has left us with reasonably, not reasonably unique, but interesting vantage points to weigh in on the bilingualism yes. uh, question. Yeah. So there have been you know, innumerable pundits weighing in. Um, the first one that comes to mind is Rosemary Barden's opinion piece. Oops, I mean analysis piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On uh, that certainly raised some eyebrows. Yeah. On whether or not uh, French was optional. Yeah. Um, and I know we've had thoughts on this in the past amongst ourselves. Yeah. Um, where do you land on the French question? I personally, well, or the English one, because I think that's something you always have to keep in mind: is how would Anglophones feel about a Francophone Quebecer who only speaks French running to be their prime minister. I think to ask the question in that frame is a little bit to answer it. Wait, haven't there been block leaders doing that? Yeah, but I think it's a little <laughs> bit of a unique situation uh, in that they no way pretend to speak for Anglophones in their province. Uh, and nor do they particularly care about the rest of Canada for reasons I, I leave to them to articulate. <laughs> Um, but no, I think I like I said. I think to ask it is to answer it. Like I don't think that conservatives in Alberta would be supportive of voting for a conservative leader who only spoke French. I think that would leave them a little cold. Um, so to that extent, I think it's like worth considering the 
the, the sort of counterfactual there because it's usually so what, talked about from the other direction. What's the closest historically we get to that counterfactual? Who is the pre uh, the prime minister who spoke the worst English? Um, I don't really know how good Wilfred Laurier's was. Maybe. Okay, let's settle for modern-ish times. Like I'm sure, actually, Wilfred Laurier's English is probably pretty good. Jean Chrétien, he spoke perfectly fine English. Trudeau Senior, he also was spoke fine. fantastic yeah. No, English. I'm just, yeah, I'm he's just, better than most people. I'm just, I'm just talking yeah. through it. Mulroney is fine. I'm um, trying to yeah. think of the Quebec, uh, the Quebec prime ministers in recent history. Yeah, which you have named. Uh, yes. Yes. So. I mean, that's the, the point being that it's never happened. So among them, I think yeah. we'd agree, Kretzian being the worst. But that said, Kretzian could make itself understood perfectly well, etc. With so the yes. the bar is set high. Yes, got it. I would say Kretzian's English was better than Stephen Harper's French by like a reasonable margin. Sure. Yeah, uh, Kretzian also had a lot of charm that helped certainly. Uh, but no, I I think it would be and Kretzian notably did not do so hot out west. <laughs> generally speaking um, Harper notably did not do so hot in Quebec Yeah, and, and he did actually okay I mean he won 10 seats um, at one point <laughs> I mean yeah like obviously he was in there for a little bit so the, the seat count fluctuated but like at the high tide of conservatism in the Harper era in Quebec it's like about a dozen give or take Sure. Um, which is like in a province with 79 seats is like you know it's not great but it's not like horrific either it's not like one reform would like not win seats in Ontario, right? That, that sure different phenomenon. Um, so yeah, all that to say, I think there is a bit of like I think it's worth it for I I appreciate the position of Anglophones from British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Alberta, for whom French is not a fact of life for them. It's not something they encounter. They encounter other minority languages much more often. However, I think it's important to consider that Canada, from the Quebec point of view is a plurinational country um and that if you start to make quebec or you start to make canada not a plurinational country anymore if you insist on majority rule if you insist on institutions and political institutions only catering to the majority then like those are the conditions in which you had a very strong sovereignty movement um well actually you had the sovereignty movement leading to a rejection of that i think at the federal level with pierre trudeau's bilingualism etc so, I don't know. I think it would not be wise to repeat the experiment uh, for a lot of good reasons. But also, I think the plurinationalism that Canada's Federation has is, broadly speaking, one of its better features. And one that can accommodate broader varieties of difference, whether it be with indigenous peoples, whether it be with, like, emerging minority communities. Like, I think that that's, like, not a terrible thing. And it would be a shame to let that fall by the wayside. Sure. Yeah. Um, all, of, all of those points are well taken. Um, the question that often comes up, or not not the question, but is, what are the candidates that, whose level, who are being discredited or not considered, is it a net neg, positive or negative? Sure. Um, that and candidates it, are dismissed because yeah. of their level of French. And I totally, totally, totally appreciate that, like, overwhelmingly, uh, people who have really good French and English to be able to function, you know, politically in both languages are overwhelmingly from the St. Lawrence Valley. Like, I I get that, yes. and I don't think that that's, like, There's great. a certain ge- geographic and class component, No, I, and I 100... Who the people are that are equipped with these skills. I 100% appreciate that. I do think that people have floated, like, the Quebec lieutenant model, uh, which I think is not dumb. 
right? Like, I think the idea, though, has to be that this person is seen to be almost a co-leader, right? And I think people could accept that, that you have someone who is in the executive sort of from wherever, and then you have someone in the executive who kind of represents Canadian francophones in Quebec. Uh, I think that that is like a model I can imagine working, and it has worked in Canada in the past. We have a certain political party that has co-leaders. Do we? Not in not the federal level. No, provincially. Yeah, provincially there are a few. Yeah. Uh, the only one I know. Can I say that? Yes. Yeah, so I think so one of the Green parties might, but uh, I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, no, it exists, and like this is actually not unknown in Europe to have sort of co-led parties. I don't know how often they've been in government, so, <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting question. So there is an interesting parallel, and it's it's not a direct parallel to the question of Western alienation going on right now for, yeah. for some of the same reasons. Um, and around the questions of the cabinet, yeah. the the selection of cabinet, right? Yeah. Trudeau made the decision, well, I mean, his hands were tied in part, but he made the decision not to use any sort of creative thinking. Yeah. Um, and created a cra- uh, crafted a cabinet that basically excluded uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan entirely. Yes. And then appointed, you know, a few Westerners or people who were historically Westerners, but ne- didn't necessarily <laughs> represent... Westerners, yeah. <laughs> who didn't necessarily represent... Uh, a Western... Well, I mean, a Western prairie. Voice. A prairie. Yes, because what, you're thinking of one person in particular means, here. Yes. yes. Well, no, there's a few. I mean, Wilkinson has yeah. been heralded as the Sask guy as yes. of late. Uh, Freeland has been pumped up for her Alberta credentials. Yeah. But, but Freeland's actually where I was leading to sure. because she's sort of the example of we're going to put... The person with Alberta, I mean, she's also been sort of the the shining star among cabinet in this government, but it was part of the consideration undoubtedly in putting her as deputy prime minister was to hype up her Alberta roots and to make her the the person who could speak to Western Canada in perhaps a way that uh, our Laurentian Trudeau could not. Mm -hmm. So like... I I roll my eyes as I say this because it's almost like Trudeau speaks a different language than the prairies these days. Yeah. So there there are sort of some parallels to be drawn there, although undoubtedly not a perfect comparison Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, there's a very different distinction between not really liking Trudeau for what he says and simply not being able to comprehend what he's saying. Yes. Um, So let me... So what's your sort of summary of your thesis is that you think... Obviously, French is important that when you flip the script... People wouldn't stand for it. People wouldn't stand for it. Um, what is the minimum level of French you think is required? I mean, like, there's not like a... I'm not going to say like you got like a 75 in grade 6 or something. Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I think it's just you have to be able to make yourself understood. And I think, for I, for instance, I think Stephen Harper's French was perfectly acceptable. I think he had a perfectly, like, reasonable, fine level of French. I think people in Quebec didn't like him more because he was a conservative than because his French was bad. Like, you know, it's like... So... I, I would say it's interesting because, like, Trudeau, for instance, I would say speaks French a lot more like we do than, like, Stéphane Dion does in the sense that he is someone from a Francophone family who was raised largely in an Anglophone context in Ottawa. Yeah, a lot of people yeah. think French is his first language, it is not. but it's not. Well, it's his mother tongue, but second yeah. language, much like both of us. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Um... But, so, there was the clip that circulated recently of Peter McKay. It was quite a, quite a basic sentence, actually. Oh, oh. Was... <laughs> je, je, what was it? Je serai candidat? Or... No, je, je serai candidat. That was it. <laughs> 
where he got all three words wrong in a three-word sentence. Yeah. But then bad. he said he concluded the clip in the way you would conclude a conversation with someone in person. Yeah. Um, like, see you later or something like that, which I, is, like, not the way you typically finish videos. It was okay. sort of a weird crutch leaning on sort of the conversational level of French. Sure. Um, and it is certainly, as, as has been illustrated, he was a cabinet minister for a yeah. decade, um, give or take. Um, that his level of French is so low is notable. Yeah. Um, uh, do you think his think level of take, French is too low? Let's do you take think... it as read that Peter McKay doesn't strike anyone as the, perhaps the most intellectually curious man around Stephen Harper's cabinet table. I think it's fair to say. I, I, I haven't really heard him speak, to be honest, in French. So I, I don't really feel that I'm in a position to say one way or the other. I, for that matter, I don't know what Aaron O'Toole's French sounds like. So This has all been building to, to my yeah. inquisition of you and your choice for leadership candidate once upon a mm-hmm. time. Um, the NDP race did not have the strongest French speakers in it. Uh, well, I mean, it had two very solid French speakers. Sure. And two who had a somewhat weaker grasp of the language. Somewhat weaker, gra- <laughs> somewhat weaker grasp of the language. I would say that, yeah. <laughs> Interestingly and diplomatically put. Yes. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I personally struggle with it because... My French education, after leaving uh, the Francophone system, uh, and the fact that the Francophone system exists in Alberta was, you know, somewhat of a miracle. Um, but it was also somewhat exclusionary in that you had to ha- hit a certain bar when one of your parents had to be, yeah, uh, have a French as their sure, first language. Sure, that's the Wazaki thing. thing. That's pretty common, and yeah. Um, but once I went to an English-speaking school, my French education was garbage. Yeah, so we I mean, we've talked about this the before. Verbs yeah, we've talked about this before. Every year for like five years. There's a level to which like French education in English Canada is just basically taken as a joke by students. Yes. Uh, and like, I don't really know precisely why that is. I don't know if parents sort of see it as unimportant, and therefore it, that gets passed on. I don't know. Right, like whether you know, not like passed on. They're told like, "Son, French doesn't matter. Don't try." <laughs> but just like, there's not an importance assigned to it, right? Like, no one, no one's like angry that you got to see in French, you know. Whereas if you got to see in math, they'd be a little more upset, right? I, I'm not. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I my second language at school was actually Spanish, uh, so I grew up in the states. For people who don't know, uh, so I learned Spanish, and to this day, I still like try to keep in practice and i have like i understand spanish still fairly well and like i think given a little more immersion i could have like reasonably good spanish within a couple months again but like yeah like for me french is something i had to work really hard to keep uh by speaking at home we we did french lessons on friday afternoons which let me tell you in high school was like not really the first places you wanted to be on a friday afternoon but there you go uh, my parents said I would thank them someday, and indeed I do. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it was in fact the right thing to do. But yeah, so no, it's uh, it's tough. Like I, I totally, totally, totally hear your point that like access to good French education is not equal in this country, and like I think it should be much more than it is. And I think part of that is there has to be more value assigned to it by people across the country, and that's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Yeah, and sort of to, to lean on my personal experience of taking a conversational Italian classes in university, 
My um, conversational Italian is somehow better than yours. <laughs> Italian, as, as, bo- as friends of both of us can attest to. Italian French, very similar languages. Um, yeah, learning a third language yeah. was very difficult for me because I'd never done... So, so it's interesting. It was the kids who'd done French um, as a second language were much more keen and better at learning Italian because they knew they how knew to how learn language works. Language. Yeah, see, yeah. that's the thing. When I did Latin in university, like, I actually... it You get really good at actually analyzing how language works because of the case system, which sure. German also has and how other languages also have. Because you actually have to think about, like, parts of speech and, like, how sentence fits together. Where if you're just raised... You know, fish don't see water. It's kind of that thing. Yes, like, exactly, if you're raised around exactly. grammar, you often don't have the best grasp of it. Uh, but certainly, like, people who... Like, English is not a language where grammar is taught very widely anymore, which puts uh, French as a second language learners who, for whom English is their first language at a disadvantage because they don't really have context for, like, okay, what's a complement d'objet direct or whatever, right? Because you're sure. just not used to thinking in those terms. So, I mean, look, I just think in general, like, we should teach languages better than we do and more importance should be placed on them because in some sense, like, I can't do, like, long division anymore. I don't remember how to do that. But, like, I can speak with people and make myself understood in, like, three languages on a good day. Latin, I guess. (laughs) Not that there's a lot of people with whom I need to make myself understood. But uh, I don't know if I went to Vatican City or something. Oh, the Pope's here. Ask for directions. Um... But yeah, it's like that I think is more important than whether or not I can do long division. I, not popular in the STEM age as a point of view, but like, there you go. I don't know. Languages are really important and becoming more so all the time because we have such a more globalized world. Yeah. And just as a closing point, I think a lot of people have this like Pete Buttigieg view of the world and of leadership candidates that they should like... Just look at the resume. Take five to ten years to perfectly hone and craft their resume. Yeah. To build up to this moment where they knew they were going to run. Yeah. Where a lot of it is more ad hoc than that. Yes. Um, in practice of, you know, opportunity. No well, one... and if you if you do the Pete Buttigieg thing, you come off like Pete Buttigieg, which is to say... Uh, yeah, you, you, Chuck, leave, you leave Mayo Pete alone. Yeah, the Chuck E. Cheese, right? The rat-faced corporate animatronic. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, there you go. I, no, it's like it's a tough issue. But yeah, I, I, I really have a lot of sympathy for people for whom like good French education was not an option for them. And I think like we need to do more for people like when they're kids to get them better language education. Um, and for adults to have more options. Like, this is a big issue, for instance, in New Brunswick. It's a perennial political issue in New Brunswick yes. where people feel they can't get jobs because they don't have the second language. Uh, and, like, yeah, it's, it is harder because well, other people have a big thing on the resume that's like, I can communicate with 100% of people versus I can communicate with either one-third or two-thirds. You, you don't need, well, you, you didn't have to go to New Brunswick. You can just, the civil service in Ottawa has... You know, incredible tensions and dynamics around language training yeah. and what letters you get when you test and, you know, ADMs and senior executives will regularly get kidnapped for six months yeah, exactly. to go on language training. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, the uh, sort of, di- not the dying days, but in the tail ends of their career, yeah. they finally become an executive, you know, they have two more years to really shine at the top level, and it's like, oh, you need six months of language training to get your C's. Yeah, or E's. Uh, yeah, I have an interesting workplace right now where um, I work with a largely Francophone team. Uh, so what we do is I'll just speak in French until I forget a word and then just switch to English, or like say that word in English, go back to French. And then my Francophone colleagues will occasionally speak in English to me, forget a word, go to French, and like we just sort of like 
changing all day which works it's fine um and that that i think is like the dream that like people can just speak in their language be understood and the other person speaks in their language of choice like that seems great uh which doesn't require like a hundred percent total fluency on either person's part in the second language but like at least being able to understand yeah which, the, it's basically like the star trek translator thing it's great. It's, it, <laughs> yeah. just, it just feels magical it's great the, the comprehension certainly yeah. see like and that's what's sort of interesting about the way a lot of jobs are structured in the government is comprehension is often put alongside grammar i'm trying to remember what the three c's are it's spoken uh, alongside yeah. spoken so you're you're often like a lot so there's a bit of background into sort of public service positions a lot of positions will be rated as cbc's so C's counterintuitively are a higher level yeah, than B's. Yeah, don't get me fucking started on whoever. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, you know the system that everyone uses in school? Why don't we use the opposite of that? <laughs> Where B is, like, bad, C is... Cuda, no. C- cocaine. Crazy. <laughs> cocaine. Crazy and good. And E is exempt, which means you don't have to take any more tests. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of the civil service... A lot of civil service positions are CBC. Yeah. The first C being comprehension. The yeah. last C being oral communication. Yes. And B being written. And B being written. So you can write your emails in English. And yeah, you can write you can write French. garbage, yeah. but you have to be able to both speak and understand French. Yeah. It's not really quite the translation model that you described, where no. like ideally for me, and I mean this leans on my strengths as well, would be like so long as you can understand the other person and they can understand you, because the comprehension of a language is the easiest thing to do. Yes. The being able to speak and formulate your thoughts and, you know, participate in the exercise that is grammar and masculine feminine and verb conjugation, all the rest of that, is incredibly hard. And yeah. then spelling is spelling. Well, it would be interesting to have, like, a test. I mean, I'm, I'm not advocating this. I just think it's an interesting thought experiment of a test where you can choose, you have, like, this, the conversation. But you choose. You can choose to reply in either language, and you you could get somewhat reduced marks for responding in the other, but still be counted as like that being a conversation in which comprehension was achieved on both sides. Of yeah, the the, yeah. the franglish. Yes, which you know that that's kind of how language, generally speaking, works. Like when languages meld and encounter each other at cultural borderlands. That's, that's kind of how that works. Anyway. Um, that, that's a lot of ruminations on the nature of language <laughs> and the nature of language education from us, I think, for today. Uh, I think we'll, we'll call her there. Oh, I just had one more story. Did you? Yes. You, you've heard this one before. But it, it's, it's the, the anecdote that best sums up the garbage French education that is Alberta. Well, most of Canada, frankly. Um, was that in high school, there was a French teacher and the kids were like, Oh, we know Etienne. He is uh, our French friend. And she's like, Etienne is a woman's name. <laughs> Because it goes E-T-I-E-N-N-E. Ah. It should be Etienne, and then Etienne, oh like my Chien, God. That's Chien. That's Makes re- perfect sense, That's really right? bad. <laughs> I, I think I have... Yeah, you're right. I think I have... That's really bad, though. Uh, well, that'll do it for... Oh, actually, want to do our beer review? Yes. Um, for, for, this is the first time that we... Uh, this have, particular brewery is getting reviewed? I think so. Phenomenal brewery. Yeah, great brewery. Makes Excellent. really good stuff. Very, very cheap beer... Yeah, very cheap. Um, I think we, we got like five gallons of this and we paid like maybe 50 bucks. Yeah, made to yeah. order. If you can get it, I mean, it's uh, fantastic. So. The fr- freshest stuff you'll get. Yeah, that's true. Uh, for those of you who uh, may be wondering where this great deal is, this is beer we actually made ourselves. Um, this is a stout that we brewed, a coffee and chocolate stout based on the Founders Breakfast Stout, I that's believe. That's correct. Um, 
which is a lovely brewery as well, and uh, that is a great beer if you like stout. Although, a lot of craft beer people hate founders, and I've never got to the bottom of the story for that. I went to the brewery when I was in Detroit last year. I think it was wonderful. Labor, Twice, yeah. labor issues or oh, something. Fuck, labor really? treatment issues. Yeah. God damn it, that's the one thing. <laughs> sort of like the artisan bakery of the uh, uh, oh, beer world. Don't get sued. <laughs> <laughs> Parody, <laughs> entertainment purposes only. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, we brewed a stout. It's very good. Uh, this is like our fourth or fifth beer. Fifth, fifth, yeah, fifth batch. Yeah, and we'll get another one done soon enough. Uh, but yeah, thanks for listening, and uh, we will be back when there is news. Bye bye. <laughs>